today, Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks radio special featuring the voices of people thinking about and working for ways to reduce conflict in our world. You know, what is the greatest predictor of a violent event? The answer was a preceding violent event. What emotional intelligence does is it trains police officers how to learn how to control their state of mind in these emergency situations and on everyday situations. And I do remember feeling some kind of way about my brother not liking me. I didn't feel like my parents really ever addressed it. And so I think with our daughters, the conversation is a huge start. Had this way not been taken, I think we can imagine that. What kind of world would it be with the peoples of the Americas developing on their own? I come to really see forgiveness as the oil of personal relationships. I think without it, we lead quite miserable lives. Stay tuned for Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks radio special. This is Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks radio special. Highlights from just one season from our series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution, which you can find out more about at peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls with Suzanne Kreider and Carol Boss. During this particular season of programs, many high-profile gun violence shootings and controversies over police use of violence dominated the headlines. This influenced us to devote several shows to related topics like the nature of loneliness, since many shooters were characterized as loners. We also sampled opinions on how to improve police and citizen relationships and talked with epidemiologist Dr. Gary Slutkin about his team's program, Cure Violence, to treat violence prevention like a contagious disease. When asking, you know, what is the greatest predictor of violence, of a violent event, the answer was a preceding violent event. And that kind of like um, really hit the nail on the head because that's you know, also exactly the situation with flu or with TB or colds even. So it became clear that we would have to be doing something that interrupts that transmission or that spread or that contagion that we'd have to get more in there to prevent one event leading to another, and also to try to find out when an event might happen to try and, in a way, cut it off. That's where the violence interrupter piece of this came in. Dr. Gary Slutkin, let's talk about the interrupters. So just like in an epidemic, you hire people with special skills to reach the population with information and messages that could change behaviors that would stop the chain of the disease, of violence in this case, from continuing, stop the disease from spreading. So what skills for disease interrupters are common to all infectious disease work and what were specialized to this disease of the spread of violence, would you say? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, Ebola is an interesting um, cousin to this problem. So, but I mean, in a way, so is HIV, AIDS and and others. The, The most important thing is who is selected as workers so that the people who they're talking to um, trust them. So they have access to the people themselves in their homes, on the streets, rather than running away from these people. These are people who they already know and see them as part of their same kind of peer group. They also know that they're talking to them in their own interest. So if you have someone who's working on violence, you want to have people who come from the same 
subgroups even, in the same gangs, walk the same streets. Some of them are even cousins or they know a lot of the people. So they are able to find out what happened at the party last night or who's upset about something. Gary, there was a documentary produced on this program back in 2011 as it was rolling out in Chicago by filmmaker Steve James. A lot of folks know him from his documentary Hoop Dreams, where you you really see the challenge of the interrupters going into these hot zones of violence and trying to apply all these tools of patience and empathy and listening and logic to people who in some cases are just hopping mad. Uh, They've just had a family member killed or arrested. The one scene with an agitated young man named Flamo. All right, but I'm just saying, so if you go to jail, who will take care of your kids? That's the thing. God taking care of us now. He going to take care of Just like when I do what I'm going to do, he going to take care of me too. But you was locked up before. Man, I'm 32 years old. I've been locked up 15 years in my life. What that mean? At one point, he says to the... Uh, the, the the fellows who are working with him, what can you do for me? How can you help me? I mean, the only thing, like I say, the only thing I could do is try to get to know you more, spend a little time with you, and try to work with so you. So that means you will take me out to dinner then. We can go to lunch right now, and we can sit down and we can talk about this problem. That's what you're telling me. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to hold you to that. Yeah, we could go out. Win. That's what you want to do. Win. We could go out now. Right now? Yeah. Let me go put my pistol up. The interrupters wind up kind of adopting Flamo over a period of time that allows him to stay out of trouble and land a job. But these are scary moments when you watch them. The interrupters are going in with no tools of violence with them. They're trying to make peace. Uh, Gary, you've seen these films and heard these stories. How do you feel when you hear and see them actually taking place? And what makes you confident that it's still the right approach? Well, the, the confidence comes really from, I mean, the, the cure violence method's in tremendous demand, primarily because it's, um, it's saving mayors money, it's saving taxpayers money, and it's making neighborhoods safer. Um, and the stories, you know, some of the stories are shown in the f- film, Interrupters. They know what to do, you see, it, and, um, and that's the whole thing. These workers are very, very highly skilled. Um, like the the scene you're look, talking about of Kobe interacting with Flamo in the the film, I mean Kobe has been in that situation hundreds of times, and so it may look like he's kind of you know ad hoc and kind of winging it. He it can analyze it. Okay, he's hot, but he's not doing this and that, and I'm just you know keep him talking, validate what he has to say. You know, and and also, you know, this isn't the first time that uh, Kobe is meeting Flamo. They know each other. Kobe was sent um, because he's someone who who Flamo already knows. So they can swear and yell, but Kobe isn't at risk. In the film, I believe Flamo actually calls Kobe and says, "This is going down," suggesting that he needs or wants the help in a way. Yeah, that's common. That's common. People, they call, and they they call about themselves. They also call about their friends. You know, my friend is about to do an armed robbery, and, I, and you know, he's, going, he's crazy. And they don't want to see their friend do this because they're afraid, you know, he's going to get hurt or he's going to have to go to prison or something, and he's only just come out. So they call us, too. Moms call us, you know. There's a mom who her son was loading up weapons downstairs in the basin with the friends. She doesn't want to call law enforcement on her son. 
but she'll call us too. So yeah, the, most, much of the neighborhoods will know the cure violence workers because we put our phone numbers out there and we've met them all. And so they will call when um, they need help. And Flamel needed help, not just the, about what he was going to do. His situation was a mess. You know, I don't know if his brother or a couple of his brothers were also arrested. His mom was mishandled and mistreated. And, you know, he, like, he, he was a mess. His family situation at the moment had really been disturbed. And it was like, what do I do? And we can help him without him making it worse, making bad um, choices. Dr. Gary Slutkin of Cure Violence. And here now, a bit of our panel on improving police and citizen relationships, starting with Steve Herbert, law professor at the University of Washington in Seattle. If we alleviated the police of this uh, expectation that they could meaningfully reduce crime, they might be less inclined to be so uh, intrusive. They might be less inclined to respond strongly when they feel like their authority is challenged. Uh, and they could work uh, with the community more productively to create situations in which uh, healthy communities can develop such that the root causes of crime might be more meaningfully addressed. Police officers just can't be in the community. They got to be of the community. And what I'm saying is they just can't ride around in police cars. They just can't go from cause to cause. They just can't be on priority calls when, when, when a 911 call comes about. They've got to be in the, those communities morning, noon, and night doing what all other individuals in those communities do. From the people that are working in the meat shops, from the people that are working in the corner stores, to the people that are working uh, just, just normally in the community as a whole, from the pastors, from churches and things like that, the librarians. And what has happened is in these communities uh, is that the police is, we're getting to a point and already at a point to where it's us against them. And we don't say that about anybody else in our communities, but police right now. And we got to bring down that wall. We got to bring down the barriers and we got to bring down those obstacles that are separating the police from the people that they are supposed to protect and serve. I think if you talk to the command staff, the administration, you would get, oh yes, we want to do that. And then they would do the things they've always done, which is try to get neighborhood associations or people to, to engage. But the difficulty is the frontline officer who says, I don't have the time to do that. I go from call to call to call to call. I'm working overtime. I'm forced into working overtime. On my days off, I have to go to court. Is it logistically possible to make what seems like a common sense shift in the way policing is done? The way, only reason it's not logistically possible is the willingness not to do it to not try. You've got to try. Um, you've got to rethink the way you deploy your resources. But the person you see in the marked vehicle is a job is to answer calls for service. The complication is there's fewer officers, but we still want a police officer to respond when we call. The number of officers working a shift in a part of a city could be 20, 10? I don't know. I mean, I don't know that answer, but it used to be very low. How do those frontline officers find the time to do it? Instead of saying they're going to do this, ask them. How, if we want to build a better community and give you more time, two hours a week, to work with your community, how could you do that and still meet the responsibility? 
of, of uh, answering calls for service. They're probably the ones who have the solution. I've never answered a call for service. I don't know what's entailed in it, but I know that the people who were expecting to make the change have to be just like the community is. The law and frontline officers have to be part of how we define that solution. That's Karen Fisher, who retired after 25 years as a citizen employee with the Albuquerque Police Department, and Cleveland City Councilor Zach Reed just before her. In May 2015, Albuquerque television station KOB-TV and anchorman Tom Joles managed to assemble nine officers from the Santa Fe and Albuquerque City Police Forces and two deputies from the Bernalillo County Sheriff's Department to talk. In your opinion, what needs to be done to heal this divide that exists? Officer Brian Worley of the Albuquerque Police. I believe that there's a cooperative team effort that we have to take with the community. Law enforcement can't be everywhere at any given time. Um, when we're dealing with a situation, a lot of the times they are the eyes and ears to the community. And it takes that cooperation with the community to come to bring things to light for us to be able to step in and help out. Um, open lines of communication. Anything else? Bernalillo County Deputy Aaron Schwartz. Well, no matter what happens, whether, whether it's on the news or the riots or anything like that, um, I believe that only a small portion of society really truly believes we're the enemy. I think for the most part, society does support us. And no matter what happens, uh, we're going to put on the uniform every day and do our best on the streets. Bernalillo County Deputy Autumn Knees. Also, it's, it's not compared to the entirety of, of police encounters. You know, typically they, one awful issue is com- not compared to the many positive encounters that we deal with or the encounters in general that we deal with even traffic stops, those are encounters as well. Again, APD's Brian Worley. Media will show the end result of what happened at X, Y, and Z, not showing the entirety of A, B, and C of what was done first before it ended in the situation of how it ended. And again, Bernalillo County Deputy Aaron Schwartz. What's also tough too is anyone that's not in law enforcement, um, it's difficult for them to even have a you know, perspective just because they are not trained on our tactics. And so it is, you know, in a sense, it is a very unbiased opinion and it is reporting. But a lot of the times, you know, it's, it's misunderstood what we do and why we do things. Next in our opinions sampler on improving the relationship between citizens and police is Jim Ginger, CEO of Public Management Resources in South Carolina. It starts with good policy. It continues with good training and it continues with good supervision. Uh, and good discipline. Those are the pillars of a good, pro- a good policing process. Uh, it sounds almost too simple to be true, but that is the approach. It's been the approach in virtually every one of these USDOJ uh, consent decrees and settlement agreements. When you have to bring change to a department, let's say in the hiring process first, uh, what are some of the bullet points, the most important things that are generally lacking that uh, are generally in need of change? Uh, the answer is we fail to do good, solid, comprehensive background investigations uh, to make sure, A, uh, that this is not someone who's had six other law enforcement jobs, lasted two and a half years in each, and now he's, he's here trying to get a law enforcement job in our community. That's a huge red flag. The, the problem actually turns out to be that the argument is made, particularly among small police departments, you know, we don't have the time to do a good background investigation. We don't have the resources. And the response to that is you don't have the resources not to because 
if if you engage in a practice of negligent hiring and get one or two or three officers on your agency who've been either terminated or allowed to resign uh, in lieu of termination in two or three other police departments before you hired them, that's that's a negligent hire. And in your as a city or a town, you're uh, liable for that officer's actions. Recently here in South Carolina, we had a 97 million dollar jury verdict against a small town for negligent hiring. Yeah, 97 million dollars can pay for a lot of resources and positions that can do background checks. Exactly, and so there's really no reason not to do these things, but there are 97 million good reasons to do them. We also talked with Greg Seville, a criminologist and police training specialist. Our approach is to say, look at the training methodologies, look at the way training is done, and you discover a rigid, uh, militaristic, uh, PowerPoint-driven, sage-on-the-stage style of learning, sprinkled with war stories and sprinkled with some scenarios that is obsolete and far out of date, and it leads to more problems than it's worth. And I was always intrigued in reading some of your materials online about an emphasis on emotional intelligence. Well, we introduced emotional intelligence about 12 years ago, and through the work we've done in emotional intelligence training, it's utterly revolutionized the way we approach learning and teaching. How this works is if a police officer is in an emergency situation and they're responding to a crisis, say a police chase, where there's a uh, high-speed pursuit and there's a lot of adrenaline, what happens uh, chemically is there's a fight-and-flight response, and, and adrenaline fires inside uh, the officer's brain, and you get very anxious, uh, very nervous, and what happens is a lot of the access you have to the normal con- conflict resolution and problem-solving strategies is minimized because you're focused on simply driving the car, getting to the scene, and so forth. Those are the kinds of things that, that lead to trouble later on because you're still driven by the emotions of the, of the, of the event, and no surprise when you look on these candid television images of, of use of force, they're happening at these, these peak moments. What emotional intelligence does is it trains uh, police officers how to learn how to control their state of mind in these emergency situations and on everyday situations by learn, teaching them how to focus on self-awareness, how to, how to calm themselves, how to use breathing methods, and all those kinds of things that are traditionally thought of as soft skills um, and are, are, are often demeaned or downplayed in the academy training. Uh, versus the hard skills, which is the, the tactical training and the shooting types of things. But the truth of the matter is the majority of these situations are driven by the soft skills. They're driven by the interactions before, the state of mind of the officer before. Emotional intelligence finally addresses that uh, in training. As I mentioned earlier, stories about mass shooters more often than not seem to land on the perpetrators being called loners. We talked with Louise Hockley, NLRC researcher at the University of Chicago who has studied loneliness and its effects on people. Loneliness is, has persisted through time, we theorize, because it serves to motivate people to connect with others. That's a really important part of our human existence, to be connected to others. If we lack that sense of connection, especially over a long period of time, if we're unable to break out of it, it can have some pretty long-lasting negative effects and immediate effects, um, both psychologically and physiologically. People who are lonely are clearly more likely to be depressed. They are prone to uh, social anxiety or hostility in some cases as a reaction to feeling 
excluded in particular. There could be some aggressive motivation. Physiologically, there are a number of long-term effects um, on blood pressure, for instance. We found that in older adults, if people are chronically lonely over a period of three to five years, these are the people who are going to see faster rates of blood pressure increase over that interval. Also see changes in one's sleep. Sleep quality seems to be affected. Um, There are effects on stress hormones. There are effects on gene expression, a very fundamental level of uh, physiology. They are much more likely to pay attention to and show activation to socially negative stimuli relative to the non-lonely person. It's as though people who are lonely at the same time as they want to connect are seeing the world in a way that makes it seem less safe, less uh, inviting, more something they have to defend themselves against. Right. Sort of developing what in media studies I'd learned to be called the scary world syndrome. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> developing a little bit more in folks who are socially isolated. Is that kind of a fair summary of that? Yeah, I think so. I I think empathy requires that you get out of your own concerns and be into somebody else's concerns. And a lonely person is very much caught up in protecting themselves. If you think of how we're wired as a human species from time immemorial, as far as we know, we are connected in utero from the moment we're born throughout life. We need that to survive. You can imagine why that would be so traumatic, if you want to call it that, so dramatic an effect for a human being to feel that the world is not a safe place. There is nobody around them that they can count on. Okay, what Dr. Hawkley told me about this defensive, even paranoid state of some experiencing loneliness seems to line up with violent loner profiles. Now, it didn't seem to matter whom I was talking with about working on this loneliness show. Everyone seemed to say, Well, you aren't going to suggest that everyone who spends time alone is at risk of snapping into violence, are you? Dr. Hawkley actually says, no, of course not to that. But UC Santa Barbara visiting professor Dr. Bella DePaulo really wanted to take that one on. Well, Annalie Roof says that a loner is someone who prefers to be alone. So that's her central basic definition. And she thinks that when we call these serial killers uh, loners and we affix that kind of dark, menacing meaning to loner. We're distorting the true meaning of loner. But let me say that whether being alone, living alone, is a good or bad thing depends on how you got there. So if you got there because you want it and you love it and you crave it, that's great. And if you got there because, let's say, a spouse died, that's more difficult, although some people find that once a spouse dies, they come into their own, in their own space and time. But the real problematic person living alone is the one who has been rejected, who has been ostracized, particularly if they've been chronically ostracized. I think that can be an ingredient to real deep anger and the potential for violence. Children, adolescents, or adults struggling with loneliness can get help from licensed therapists. 
like Robert Thompson, who works in Albuquerque, New Mexico. He says those battling loneliness can sometimes be especially reluctant to take the therapy step. They tend to kind of spiral away from humanity rather than towards it. And we know that as a person begins to feel that the world is an awful, terrible place, uh, they want to oftentimes uh, try to get rid of the terrible stuff in the world. It's why oftentimes people turn it back against themselves. If there's something so terrible about me, maybe I should just get rid of that terrible part of me, even if it's getting rid of, rid of the best part of me. So uh, I think what, what we want is for people to feel better about themselves, to understand the nature of how they got to suffer the way that they do, uh, to have some new ways to manage that suffering, and to begin to more successfully connect with other people so that they feel uh, more encompassed uh, more held by the world. What's a couple of places to take someone who sits down in your office and says, I can't maintain a relationship, I'm just so lonely, I just want to be with someone. Where do you go from there? I think we start with, well, you're here with me. Let's see if we can have a relationship, because if we can figure out what's getting in the way, if something's getting between us, then we can figure out what's getting between you and everybody else. If we can have a positive relationship, then you can have it not only here, but you can have it elsewhere as, as well. Much more, of course, on all these topics, full programs, extended interviews, helpful resources. Our website is really a Peace Studies archive, peacetalksradio.com. More of Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks Radio special right after this break. This is Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks radio special. Highlights from just one season of programs in our series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. We were just talking about handling loneliness. One way that parents come up with for addressing their first child's loneliness is to bring in a second child, and maybe more after that. Well, solving one problem sometimes causes another, and our Suzanne Kreider did a program on sibling rivalry, that included author Jeannie Safer. When I wrote my book, Cain's Legacy, I talked to an evolutionary biologist, and he told me, among other things, about a rosewood tree in India. I'll never forget its name. It's called Dalbergia sisu. And what it does is the first seed that develops in the pod on the plant, the furthest from the trunk, exudes a poison that kills all the other seeds. So this is the basis of the bad seed. It kills all the other seeds, so it can be the only next rosewood tree. And this is something that happens all through the animal kingdom, and it happens in every 
nursery of humans. Atlanta authors and parents Deneen Milner and Nick Childs know all about this. They have two teenage daughters. Uh, they were fighting this morning. <laughs> <laughs> My girls do tend to do a lot of hitting and kicking, and it is meant to be playful, but you can kind of see that they're not really kidding. The competition is going to be enormous, whether it's competing for the parents' affections, practically everything that they do, academics, athletics, there's a lot of ground there for conflict. Right now, more of Suzanne Kreider's talk with psychologist Samuel Roll in his Albuquerque office. So there are tips for the parents as well as for the kids. Let's start with parents. What tips would you give to parents? Let's go back to the Bible. Why did Cain kill Abel? Cain killed Abel because both of them offered the best that they had to God. And God said to Abel, I like yours better. Now, either God did not take Psychology 101, or he had taken Psychology 101, but was trying to teach us a lesson, or our ancestors were trying to teach us a lesson. God showed a preference for one over the other. So that's the first message for parents, is to be highly aware that children measure even the tiniest bit of Pepsi-Cola. A wise parent will make sure that she and he could do anything possible to increase the status of the older sibling. So if everybody's bringing gifts for the new baby, you make sure you get a gift for the big brother or the big sister and say, you're such a good brother and such a good sister, I got something special for you. And it doesn't have to be just in terms of monetary things or physical things are just the easiest to, to use as metaphors, but also with time. And so if you have a, uh, a child Uh, you have a four-year-old child and suddenly there's a new sister, a new brother, that brother or sister is going to be aware that the new sibling is taking a lot of mom's time. So one of the things you do as a mom, one of the things you do as a dad is say, listen, while the baby is sleeping, dad will stay here and you and I will go alone and get some special treats at the ice cream place. So you do the opposite of what of what God did in Genesis. You don't say, I like yours better. You say, you know what, I love you. And uh, I'm going to show my love to you in a non-comparative way. Well, I think that it's important that the parents actually acknowledge that this is going on and talk to them about it. That's first and foremost. I mean, I am a little sister. You know, my brother and I have not gotten along at all as far as I can remember. And it's only now that I'm pushing my late 40s and he's in his late 40s about to be 50 that we actually can have a civil conversation without the snark and the attitude that used to come with our dealings with one another and simple conversations. And I do remember feeling some kind of way about my brother not liking me. I just felt like he just did not like me when I was little and when I was in high, through high school and college. I didn't feel like my parents really ever addressed it And so I think with our daughters, the conversation is a huge start. And so our conversation usually sounds a little bit like, hey, here was the the dynamic of my relationship with my brother. Here are the reasons why I had a problem with him. Here are the reasons why he had a problem with me. And 
you two need to sit down and discuss this and understand that you're not the same people. You have different ways of thinking about things, but neither of you are more right or more wrong than the other. And when you sit down and you talk about it and really understand the importance of your very unique relationship, you'll understand that what it is that you're fighting about right now is really kind of silly. And so for me, it's having the conversation. In terms of rules, I mean, we strongly discourage physical contact. When they have disagreements, we want them to try to talk them out instead of yelling and shouting and hitting. Um, Good luck with that. (laughs) Um, the rules are for you to, to try to put yourself in the other person's position and to try to understand empathy or where the other person is coming from. And so that's something that we push hard with them. All of our panel members today have been saying in effect that once a second child comes into the picture of a family, there's really no getting around the experience of some degree of sibling rivalry stress as parents or as a sibling yourself into adulthood as well, which is the focus of New York psychologist Jeannie Safer's practice and writing. Do you have other ideas of what older siblings should do to make peace? Yes. The first thing I recommend that people do is to think about their childhood and think about it through their siblings' eyes. That you want to first try to understand what family did this person grow up in? I know we had the same biological parents. I know Mm. we had dinner together every night. But We have different relationships with our parents. What was his? What was hers? And then I want to ask myself, who is my sibling now? What is he as a brother? What is he as a father? What is he as a friend? What is he in all the relationships in his life unrelated to me? And the reason for that is that then you can get a sense of who this person is, leaving you out of it and leaving all the struggles and conflicts of childhood out of it so you can get a feeling about that person. So once you do that and once you do have memories and and positive feelings that you think you want to try to express and, and have grow, then I always recommend taking the first step, which is to go and say, look, we've had problems We've been rivals. There have been all kinds of issues between the two of us. But now we're adults, and you can say, now our parents are gone, or now our parents are ill and we need to work together, whatever it is, to say, can we try to have a relationship as adults? I really want to do it. Tell me what I need to do. Mm, Tell me? Yes. Wow. What do I need to do? How do you like that? And usually what you're greeted with is astonishment. Yes. And by the way, this is not a 15-minute conversation. If you have a sibling who's willing to make the effort, you've got probably a long time ahead of you to try to work it out. Lots of other good ideas from Jeannie Safer and our other guests in that Sibling Rivalry show from July 2015 on our website, peacetalksradio.com. Also in that 2015 season, in our March episode, Suzanne Kreider's interview with Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz author of An Indigenous People's History of the United States, who presents the history of colonialism in North America and translates its ongoing effects on indigenous populations in what is now the United States of America. I think we should, though, look not at history as as progress. I really think that those choices that were made in Europe at that time, uh, 500 years ago, um, the various choices, you know, and they're very complex, it led to a path of destruction, and uh, we've been going backwards ever since rather than forwards. Had this way not been taken, 
what kind of world would it be today? I think we can imagine that. And what kind of world would it be with the Americas, the peoples of the Americas, developing on their own? So we can't change what happened, but we can imagine a different world. Based on those mistakes, what can we do now, based on how things are now, to reduce conflict between indigenous people and non-indigenous people in the U.S.? I don't think there's any patchwork that can be done of um, conflict resolution uh, without getting to these deep roots. Uh, we need more support for, for indigenous resistance. Uh, we need to build that resistance and, and the other social movements. Um, they're really getting very strong now. We have to find ways to bring them together. It can't go very far with just indigenous resistance because indigenous peoples in the United States were reduced to you know, less than 1% of the population. There are more, uh, I don't know, Masons in the United States than there are Native people. So numerically, you know, um, they have more power than that because they have um, uh, the only, you know, collective land basis of any any people in the country. Um, but that's being eroded now, too, and it's very important that that not only be kept but supported and being built. So it's the larger movements for peace, anti-war, uh, civil rights um, that come together in the climate change uh, movement and understand that the, a commitment to rebuilding uh, robust Native American societies is the positive way to create a different United States. And I think that'll have to come from the other social movements to make that commitment. That's not so far-fetched, so I don't see this as something abstract and, and not likely to happen, but something that is in the process but should be nurtured by everyone who cares. That's Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz envisioning a burgeoning nonviolent resistance movement in the United States, bringing together multiple movements for social change. Well, another relevant discussion came up in our November 2015 episode. Carol Boss hosted with University of Denver researcher Erica Chenoweth, co-author of a book called Why Civil Resistance Works. We developed a research design where we looked from 1900 to 2006 worldwide at every known example where people had used nonviolent resistance to either remove an incumbent leader from power or to achieve territorial independence through secession or through the expulsion of a military occupation or colonial power. And uh, we compared them against their violent counterparts. And that's basically where the research came from. What we found, of course, is that the nonviolent campaigns succeeded twice as often as the violent ones. And they also achieved significant material concessions, such as autonomy or the forcing of uh, competitive elections more than twice as often as their violent counterparts. So if you could be more specific, too, about what the differences in results between violent tactics and nonviolent tactics, why the success with the nonviolent tactics? Well, we drilled down into the data. We had hundreds of cases to compare. And what we did was we looked at the characteristics of violent and nonviolent campaigns and found that the nonviolent campaigns had one thing that really differentiated them from the violent ones, and that was their sheer size. So nonviolent campaigns tend to be about 11 times larger on average 
as a proportion of the overall population compared with violent insurgencies. They are just way bigger. And their sheer size allows them uh, to activate all kinds of political dynamics that put pressure on the security forces, economic elites, business elites, educational authorities, cultural authorities, and the like, to reevaluate their own interests in the long term. And that starts to pull those pillars of support away um, from their loyalty to the, to the opponent. So basically, um, size is really important. Nonviolent resistance allows popular campaigns to get really big um, because there are many lower barriers to participation, and that's what allows them to be so politically powerful. Just out of curiosity, how soon into um, your studies did you start seeing some of their patterns? I, I heard you say in a talk that you gave that uh, you used to think that nonviolent resistance was well-intentioned but dangerously naive. And I think you said, you can correct me if I'm wrong, that power flows from the barrel of a gun. Right. So were you, were you kind of uh, shocked and startled by the results that you were coming up with? Yes. I mean, the data collection lasted from the time Maria and I met until um, early 2008. And uh, then we wrote our first article based on the results. So it was sometime early 2008 when um, I ran the initial analysis and um, was pretty surprised to find that the nonviolent resistance campaigns were outperforming the violence ones. Um, That was not my expectation. I thought at best they would be equivalent and probably more likely that the nonviolent campaigns would be less successful. Um, so I was really surprised, and um, you know, it took me a while to figure out why that was going on. It completely turned on its head most of the basic um, uh, education that I'd had about what makes movements powerful, uh, and it also turned on its head a lot of basic assumptions that I think we have, not just in my field, but in human society in general, about where power comes from. And I think a lot of people buy into the dictum that power flows from the barrel of a gun, that it's basically monolithic, that it's basically constantly replenishing itself. There's no possible way for people to affect change in their societies. And uh, those types of approaches, you know, became something that I think I would just um, buy into without having examined the evidence. Hear more from Erica Chenoweth and other guests on the topic of nonviolent resistance in our November 2015 episode. The full version there and extended content at peacetalksradio.com. This is Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks Radio special. More in a moment. I'm Paul Ingalls, series producer of Peace Talks Radio, and you're listening to a special edition which is highlighting some of the conversations we had in just one year of our programs. 
Our October 2015 episode explored how business can be done with peaceful ends in mind and included Suzanne Kreider's interview with Jeff Marcoux, CEO of Dharma Merchant Services, which processes credit card transactions, but goes about that business in a different way than some. The history of our industry, the merchant services or merchant processing industry, kind of has a tarnished reputation for um, deceptive business practices and the like. And uh, I was inspired by companies like uh, Newman's Own and Ben and & Jerry's and companies that were giving back in some respect. So uh, that was the genesis behind it. And so when we came across B corporations, I mean, we were thrilled because we didn't realize that there was a, a movement to enact social change and uh, and that business does have a responsibility to the greater benefit, which is the B and B Corp uh, benefit uh, of the communities. And we certainly can't rely on government, right, to do the right thing and, and represent uh, social change. So, you know, because business it, it touches most everybody, uh, if business gets on board to enact, you know, these kind of changes, then it will happen. So, that's a B Corp uh, in a nutshell. How is being a B Corp an example of corporate peacemaking? You know, and aside from the fact that, you know, my company donates uh, on upwards of 50% of our uh, after-tax profits to uh, the community. Uh, at the end of every year, we identify uh, nonprofit organizations in, the, in a few different categories. So, uh, many of the the recipients of our donations are in in some way uh, fostering you know social uh, equality or peace or health, uh, animal welfare, etc. And so I mean that is the direct way that we foster peace. But when you're a company that's called Dharma, and you know Dharma is a Sanskrit word that doesn't have any one word uh, interpretation or, or definition, but and it refers to one's path, and and our, you know our path is to serve others. Uh, every call that comes in, you know the the way that we interact with clients and suppliers and vendors and people just inquiring, you know we feel that's a reflection of our Buddha nature, you know, creating peace and doing it with compassion. In fact, that's that's our motto. You know, commerce with compassion. You know, as a company, you know, we have we have to look at you know, well, how much is enough? And uh, there are a lot of publicly traded companies in our space, and even privately owned companies that are creating incredible wealth. Uh, that's not the case in our company. In fact, we just made a strategic decision that we would raise the uh, lowest paid worker salary here in San Francisco to seventy thousand dollars a year. So the ratio of our, you know, lowest paid salary to mine, I'm the CEO, is less than four to one. And in our country, the average CEO to worker ratio is like 350 times. So our intention is that, you know, we, we're not only fair with our pricing, we're not only fair to our staff and, um, you know, fair to myself as the CEO, but I'm willing to do that uh, w without sacrificing, you know, any kind of increase in cost or quality of service. Uh, that's just not the nature of who I am and, and what the company represents. So uh, we're one of the only companies that I know of that has full disclosure of pricing and policies on our website. Uh, it's unheard of in our industry. I know that we're making a lot less money than our competitors are, and we're absolutely okay with that. 
More with Jeff Marcoux, CEO of Dharma Merchant Services, and other guests discussing doing business with compassion in our October 2015 episode. Hear more at peacetalksradio.com. And in our February episode of that 2015 season, you'll hear a remarkable story of forgiveness. In 1993, Amy Beale, a young American woman working in anti-apartheid South Africa, was murdered by a youth mob there. We heard about how the Beale family, led by Amy's father Peter and her mother Linda, wound up forgiving her killers and even working with two of them to improve conditions in South Africa. Here's part of that story, Linda Beale talking with Megan Camrick about the questions a Johannesburg reporter was asking her on the phone a day after Amy's death. He said started asking me, are you angry? Mm. What do you feel? They were trying to find out if you're angry and you're bitter. And I think we realized that if we acted that way, we had sort of a negative power. Because I think as time went on within the next few weeks, white South Africans were writing editorial, seeing how this happened, and now what? What are we going to have here? We're going to have a bloodbath. You know, there was that aspect. And then there were others who said, you know, Amy was so important to her cause. So it was a very difficult thing. But in reality, we were not bitter or or angry because I, I, I think we understood the context through Amy. It was a conscious thing. We had to think about it. We had to make choices. We had to to react, I think, both in, in, in her honor and memory and, and a bit, you know, I, I think to support, as Mandela called his book, A Long Walk to Freedom. And there, there, was, there were options for us. We could have said, huh, you know, let's, let's get out of this. But we, we just, well, we actually thought, I think, if we gave him a couple of interviews and said we'd support the process, it would be over, and it just never quite ended. <laughs> so they had arrested four men who were in prison yeah, and they for were, killing her. They were sentenced for murder and public violence, and they were in prison, and they were convicted by the judge. We said we want to support the process. A lot of people thought we advocated for their release. We did not. We said we want to support South Africa's process. And the TRC, um, you know, when they gave us a date, we were doing things in South Africa. And we we said to Desmond Tutu, what would you suggest? How do you think we should approach a a little bit of time that we were supposed to speak or could speak? He said, you know, just tell them about Amy and speak from your heart. And it was when I started talking about Amy personally and what she was like, all four of the guys who had been sort of sitting like this, you know, very With their eyes cast down. Yeah, started looking at us. Because they thought she was propaganda. It made her human. It made her a person. So as that day ended, um, it was sort of a day and a half kind of an event. We were walking out, and they they were being taken back to the prison in a truck, and it was waiting outside. And we were coming through the passageway to leave the court, away from the press, actually. And there they were. And they, they shook our hands, and they said, Please forgive us. They asked for forgiveness. They didn't have to do that. But when they got out, when they were released, they found that things had not changed in their communities. In fact, some of it was worse. But they decided to start a youth group. So this is easy in tobacco. Yeah, so this is easy in tobacco. And they were actually being interviewed by an anthropologist from Cal Berkeley who was studying them. And um, she... She said, so would you like to see the Beals? And they said, yes. And my husband was over there. And she, she brought him out to meet them. 
they checked him out to see if he was carrying a gun and things like that. But eventually they sat down and they wanted to know where I was. And he said, well, she's coming next week. And they just kind of sat around in Easy's little house and talked. And they said, and we've started a youth group, and et cetera. So I get there. And I walk in, and Easy said I was shy. I wasn't really shy. I was just kind of looking around, I think. But he says I'm one of seven brothers. And I go, oh, and I pull out a picture of my week-old grandson. This is my grandson. (gasps) Makulu. And I go, oh, what's that? Grandmother. And then they started calling me Makulu and my husband, Dom Kulu. It's like, what is this? What? So now I think they now work for your foundation. Is that correct? They do. Um, Did you, I mean, is it odd to have this now longstanding deep relationship with the men who, who saw Amy's last moments, who were responsible for her death? It was much more natural. I, I think when they named me Makulu, and then at this launch for the youth group, there was this sort of head table. They brought in people from the community to sing and dance for us, and they did a little program, and it said, Linda Beal, mother of us all, please tell us of your experiences. A little farther down, Peter Beal, father of us all, help us. They wanted him to help in business, help us develop our skills or something like that. It's like, I think they adopted us. I think it's more common than people realize that the need to be positive, to fill a void, and to go on in honor and in, you know, in honoring that person you lost in some way is a part of us as much, if not more, than anger and bitterness. Linda Beale, the mother of Amy Beale, the 26-year-old anti-apartheid activist and Fulbright scholar who was killed in mob violence in South Africa in 1993. Now here's Easy No Famela, who, along with Topeko Penny, had been working with the Beals for most of the years since they were granted an amnesty for their part in Amy Beal's death. Easy No Famela talked with us on a not-too-good phone connection from his home in South Africa. You see, in the township, it's not easy to succeed. It's but not easy there to succeed, he says, and trouble, drugs, and crime beckon young people from all directions. So any sports or learning a trade keeps young people from wandering down the path to jail. To keep the kids out of the street, the kids out of the, the court, you see a better, a better future for them. Better future for them, yes, right. Prison, prison is not a place for them. What they need is education. And this was the same message he said he heard Amy Beale's parents saying about him when he was serving his sentence in jail. Every time they talk, over the radio television, they say the same thing. When I was alone, sitting and thinking about, I want to claim my childhood. I want to be easy no female. So I want not to be told to do. I want to be myself out of the shoes of the militant, be a civilian. He's saying take the shoes off of a militant and be a civilian. So when I become a civilian, it's easy to me to forgive first myself rather than to to forgive other people. That makes change when I claim my identity to be childhood. Let's forgive and reconcile one another. They understand uh, we've been involved in in their daughter's death, but the way they handle 
Easy went on to say that in his view and in his township, relations between whites and blacks are so much better now than when he was released from prison in the late 1990s. Still work to do, he says, but better now. Before we close, I want to share with you a bit of a conversation I had with journalist Marina Cantacuzino, who in 2003 started something that grew to be called the Forgiveness Project, stories of extraordinary acts of forgiveness. Beale's story is one that she featured. Something that Linda said to me, which was very moving, she said that a, she found there was a little bit of Amy's spirit in those boys, in Easy and Tembeko. And and I could understand that in a way. Not only had were they the last to see her daughter alive, but also their restoration, in a way, puts meaning into a senseless murder and... There's been quite a lot of research into victims of homicide or survivors. People who cope better are able to to make meaning and make sense, make some sense for themselves out of a terrible trauma. And it struck me that that's exactly what Linda had done by founding this organisation, by employing these young men who killed their daughter, her daughter. And it was a remarkable relationship that they developed, a very parental one in a way, a very caring one. And it's great that they're all still working together still. You know, you wonder if these things can last, but 12 years since I've actually been to South Africa and met them, they're all still working together for the Amy Beale Foundation, which is a remarkable testimony, I think, to their willingness to try and change the world that they live in. Uh, Talk just a little bit about what what the broader lessons or the smaller lessons that can be applied uh, from mm. these stories that, that, that you've found that people maybe have told you? I come to really see forgiveness as the oil of personal relationships. I think without it, we can leave quite, lead quite miserable lives. And another reason why I'm interested now in actually collecting some, if you like, smaller stories, more everyday stories of forgiveness is because when I look around me, I see so many ugly divorces, children not speaking to their parents, friends who are estranged from each other. This is really important work with forgiveness to actually look at all our own individual smaller forgivenesses. Marina Cantacuzino on her forgiveness project. Much more from her and all the others you heard during this hour in our episodes from the 2015 season of our series online at peacetalksradio.com. And of course, there's the equivalent of a full peace studies curriculum on that site as well, with scores of programs on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Our work on this project is supported by the nonprofit organization Good Radio Shows Incorporated. Your tax-deductible financial support is appreciated. Learn how you can donate at peacetalksradio.com. Support also comes from the McCune Charitable Foundation of New Mexico and caring businesses like A Spinal Health and Movement Center and Ruben Ramirez, in Albuquerque's Knob Hill neighborhood. Nola Daves-Moses is the executive director of Good Radio Shows. Ali Adelman composed and performs our theme music. For Suzanne Kreider and Carol Boss, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. Mm